You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. There's a very certain and specific mood and theme that resonates all throughout the book of Revelation as we looked at chapters 8 through 11. And we begin to see these trumpet blasts in heaven that represent and give John visions of this this struggle and this conflict. We see kingdoms at war. We see God's judgment over rebellious creation. And we even see God's people suffering and struggling and even being imprisoned and dying for their faith in Christ. And looking through these passages, the language is often harsh. At times it feels very chaotic overwhelming, and really difficult to process. And then comes the seventh trumpet, the final blast of this vision of conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And that's where we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, where we see the dust settle from all the conflict and all the chaos and a victor is revealed. And in the midst of all the difficulties and all the hardships and all the harshness of these first six trumpet blasts in the book of Revelation, the seventh ends with a message of hope. A message of hope specifically for God's people, where John receives a vision of a victorious and fully realized kingdom of God. Now, That last phrase is very important. When we talk about this vision being a picture of the fully realized kingdom of God. Because if you were here about a year ago, when we were going through the teachings of Christ in the book of Luke, we see Jesus make the proclamation that the kingdom of God is, is in our midst. That Jesus came and through his life and his ministry, his death and his resurrection, Jesus brought the kingdom of God to the world. And that Jesus even now is ruling and reigning over his creation. But we also know that there's still brokenness in our world. There are still kingdoms, both physical and spiritual, vying for power and attention. We still live in a world filled with sin and brokenness and violence. And we find ourselves caught in the midst of that. And it brings an awareness to mind that we're not there yet. That even though the book of Revelation says that God has saved us, if you're a follower of Christ, to be a kingdom and made us into a kingdom of priests, that we still haven't been able to enjoy the fullness of what God's kingdom will look like when Christ returns to make everything right and everything new. And so at the end of this vision here in Revelation chapter 11, God gives us, or God through John gives us a picture of what that will look like a small glimpse and glimmer of what it will look like when God's kingdom comes in its fullness to earth and we get to fully realize the total victory that comes from our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we're going to look today at three characteristics that we can see in God's kingdom and that we can look forward to on the day when we get to see it in its fullness. And so we'll look at Revelation chapter 11 this morning, verses 15 through 19. This is God's word. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world 
has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, O Lord Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. But God, we also ask for forgiveness for the times that we forget that. Because so often, this life can feel very defeating, individually, but also, God, for your church. Sometimes it's hard to feel like we're living in victory when there's so much suffering and pain and hardship all around us, when we're constantly being tempted from every side and falling into sin, and also God's suffering, and even at times for Christians all over the world being persecuted for your sake, it's hard sometimes to remember that you are a victorious king and that you're giving us a victorious kingdom. God, as we look at your word and we get this amazing window into the future of, of all who trust in your name, God, I pray that you help us to live with the message of the kingdom on our hearts, in our minds, and in our hands so that we can glorify you in all that we think, say, and do, that we can also bring awareness to your kingdom, God, because we are praying that your kingdom would come on earth just as it is in heaven. And God, as we are blown away by the little sample of it that we have here and now, God, we are just in eager expectation to experience it in its fullness. So teach us through your word, guide us through your Holy Spirit. God, remind us of all you are and all that you do. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing that we see about this kingdom is pretty straightforward. That God's kingdom is a victorious kingdom. God's kingdom is a kingdom of victory. And if you've been here, you've heard this sentence probably more than you care to over the course of this study through Revelation, but it bears repeating. If you're new with us this morning, Revelation can be a big, scary, intimidating book, and we want things to help us interpret and understand. And as we've seen, the most helpful companion that we have to the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. And so many times, some of the signs and pictures and, and imagery out of the book of Revelation is something that John brings right out of the Old Testament to help us connect God's big story and to see what God is doing. And so when we look at these seven trumpets, the number seven comes up a lot in the book of Revelation, and we've seen a lot of importance placed on that number, and it's going to continue to surface all through the rest of this book. 
But this isn't the first time that we've seen the number seven pop up in scripture. In fact, this isn't the first time that we've seen the number seven directly related to the sound of trumpets. Because we also see it a long time before this in the book of Joshua. And as Joshua and the people of Israel are coming out of wandering in the wilderness, out of their coming out of their punishment for not trusting and believing in God, and he's leading them into the promised land, they come across this city called Jericho. And Jericho is an intensely fortified city with this incredibly great wall that's protected them for generations. And God comes to Joshua and he says, this city belongs to you. I've already conquered it. It's yours and it's ready for the taking. But instead of sitting Joshua down and saying, here are all the weak points in the wall and how you can find your way in, or saying, here are the weapons that you're going to need to conquer this great city, God comes to Joshua and he says, here's what you're going to do. You guys are going to go for a walk. You're going to take all of your soldiers and you're going to walk around the city one time every day for six days. And as you walk around the wall one time every day for six days, you're going to blow trumpets as you walk. Six days of walking and trumpet blasts. And then he says, on that seventh day, you're going to walk around the city seven different times and you're going to blow your trumpets. And as these trumpets have this long blast, the city's walls are going to fall down and the city is going to belong to you. And so Joshua had this promise that when that last trumpet blew, the walls would fall and the kingdom of Jericho would become the kingdom of God's people. And here, in the book of Revelation, we see a similar thing take place. God making a proclamation that a victory has already been won and we're just on a march towards it. All throughout the book of Revelation, there is language of struggle. We see incredible conflict between God's people and the kingdom of the world. We see cosmic spiritual battles. We see earthly battles and everything in between. There is constantly this state of conflict going on inside of the book of Revelation. But as we've already seen and we see here today, when God steps in, the conflict ceases. And just like in the battle of Jericho, there was no conflict. There was no struggle. There were other places where the people of God were having to fight and wrestle with all of these other armies and governments. But when it came to Jericho, God just brought the walls down for the people and there was no competition. And in the same way, all the way through the book of Revelation, when we see God step in, in his righteous judgment, in his righteous justice, and moving in and throughout his world, the conflict stops, and he just claims the victory for himself. This passage here in Revelation chapter 11 is a very noisy one. And it begins with loud voices crying out. And the very first thing that we hear in this passage of scripture is a declaration, a statement of fact, the results of this battle. Where these loud voices in heaven cry out and they say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that's such an interesting passage there. Because if you were here two weeks ago, when we looked at the passage that came before this, the first big chunk of Revelation chapter 11, 
we see this picture of these two witnesses that represent God's people. And they were living in the midst of incredible difficulty. They were prophesying and preaching God's word, showing the prophetic power of God's people, but they were afflicted and persecuted and even killed because of what they had done. And yes, we see this resurrection passage there, but it feels a little bit like defeat. And yet, here in this very next passage, God steps in and the struggle vanishes. God moves in his power and there's no more conflict. He just claims the victory that belongs to him. That now the kingdoms of this world that were warring against each other and trying to war against him, they have no more power and they have become the kingdom of God. And I love that language there because this isn't where God went off somewhere else that he creates the world and that sin enters the world and all these counterfeit kingdoms pop up and try to steal authority away from God and try to impose their will on the world. And so God says, you know what, fine. I'm just gonna go start over somewhere else and make me a new kingdom somewhere else. But I also think it's important to notice that God doesn't just completely wipe the slate clean, make it disappear and start all over. But that God looks at this creation that he made that he had a very clear and definite purpose for, and he sees the brokenness and corruption inside of it, and so he walks in and he conquers the kingdom that sought to corrupt his world, and he plants his flag in the middle and claims his victory. And says, no, no, this isn't your kingdom. You were on borrowed time. You've had your fun. You've had your moment. You've had your perceived authority, but now I'm taking back what belongs to me, and the kingdoms of this world are gonna once again be mine. And that results in a heavenly hymn in verse 17 and 18. And we see these elders that are gathered around the throne. They fall on their faces and they start worshiping God. And listen to what they say. They say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding of your saints, the prophets and saints and those who fear your great name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is a victory hymn. This is a battle cry saying, God, all of these people, all these nations, all these principalities and cosmic powers thought that they could stand against you. But when you decided it was time, no one could stand before you. And we give thanks to you because of who you are. So often we approach the book of Revelation with a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's the case for anyone, but especially oftentimes Christians will look at this book and they'll see some of the big imagery. And we'll see some of the difficulty and some of the harsh passages, which by the way, we've got a few more coming it gets a little darker and it gets a little heavier before we start to see that full victory of Christ unfurl. And so it can be intimidating and a little bit overwhelming. But the reality is there should be no fear for followers of Christ when we approach this book, because this book, as we see here in Revelation chapter 11, as we've seen from the beginning of Revelation chapter one, all the way to Revelation 22, this book is a book of victory from start to finish. We see in this passage, a creator God 
and the victorious Messiah King and Jesus Christ put on display the fullness of God's victory through this portrayal of his final kingdom. And so when we approach this passage, it's the Christian responsibility to take heart in this passage and to find joy and to find hope and even to find peace in the midst of this passage because we recognize that if you have put your faith in Christ, that you belong to a kingdom that, as the writer of Hebrews says, cannot be shaken and will not be destroyed because God has already claimed the victory. God has already won the battle and we're just marching around the city. And one day this final trumpet is going to blow and the walls of the kingdoms of this world are going to fall and God is going to say, this all belongs to me and we get to come in and inherit that eternal victory. But we need to learn to be people who pray for that day. Not to spoil the ending, but the book of Revelation ends with a prayer. As we see the writer beg, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so we should absolutely be overwhelmed and enjoy what we get to experience here and now as God's people and all the benefits of the kingdom that we receive, our salvation, our new identity in Christ, the hope that we have in eternity and an eternal future with him, the love and the grace and mercy that we receive each and every day, and the fact that we get to be called sons and daughters of God. We should enjoy that with each and every passing moment, but also we should be praying, knowing, God, there's more to this story. And there's more that you have in store for your people. And so even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and help us to receive the fullness of this victorious kingdom. But we also see here that not only is God's kingdom victorious, but God's kingdom is an awe-inspiring kingdom. When we look at this full picture of what God is doing, this kingdom should move us to awe and wonder. If you haven't caught on yet, there's a lot of patterns that go through the book of Revelation. And we'll see a triad, a set of three sevens. These numbers, there's a lot of them. And so the first set of seven was the seals. As Jesus is breaking open the seals of the scroll and revealing God's full plan to redeem his people and to bring salvation. We see these trumpets that are warnings and visions of a judgment that God is going to bring in the world to redeem creation itself and drive out sin and brokenness. And in a few weeks, we'll look at seven bowls as God pours out his judgment on his creation. And there's some parallels that go with each passing set of seven. And when we look at the first seal, the the seventh seal, excuse me, as Jesus has broken open each seal and he breaks open the scroll and reveals the fullness of God's plan, something astonishing happens. All of heaven goes silent. And we've seen, I've already said it once today, but from, from the very beginning of Revelation, we've recognized that heaven is a very noisy place. There's rolls of thunder and flashes of lightning and earthquakes moving around the throne of God, just constant movement in heaven and all these heavenly beings singing songs to God, crying out in thanksgiving and praise and adoration to God and to Christ and the Holy Spirit just pouring out love and affection. Heaven is noisy. But then when Jesus opens that seal, John says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Because when the fullness of God's plan was revealed, the judgment 
The sorrow, the suffering, the salvation, the love, the grace and mercy, and everything that Jesus was going to have to do to accomplish this big plan that God has for his people, it left heaven speechless. But the seventh trumpet brings a different reaction, a contrasting parallel here. As this trumpet blows, And we hear this proclamation that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. When this proclamation goes out, when this voice cries out, these elders around the throne of God, they they fall out. And we've seen this incredible picture of all the things that move around the throne of God, all these heavenly beings with their roles and responsibilities and authority. And we've seen these elders that are gathered around the throne of God that represent the people of God. And they're adorned like kings. They wear crowns on their head. They sit on thrones. They appear to have authority in heaven and on earth. But now this angel blasts this trumpet and these voices cry out about the authority of God. And these angels who are, or these elders who are overwhelming and rich with authority, they take their crowns and they throw them at the foot of the cross and they fall on their faces, abandoning their thrones and worshiping God. Because even though these elders sit on the throne, they know where the true authority lies. And when they see the fullness of what God's kingdom will look like, they look at their thrones, they look at all they have, and they say, no, we're not worthy to even sit in your presence. And they fall on their faces, and they begin to give thanks. This revealed kingdom of God radically displays the fullness of his power. And heaven can't help but worship. These elders can't help but to fall down and glorify God. And so they give thanks in this hymn that we just read. And I think there's an incredible pattern here that should be a part of our worship, that should be part of the way that we sing, that should be part of the way that we pray. And so let's look at what they say. They give thanks to God first and foremost for who he is. They say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And so often, we're just looking for reasons to glorify and worship God. Our worship is a reaction to something that God does for us. And so we say, oh, okay, God, you you did this thing for me. God, you helped me get the job that I wanted, so I'm going to give you thanks. God, you protected me in the midst of a car accident and I'm healthy when I should be really hurt and broken. And so God, I'm going to give you thanks. God, I saw you work an awesome thing in the life of my church or in the life of a family member. And you've done incredible things that I can see and understand and touch and feel. And so because of what you've done for me, I give you thanks. But that's not where the elders start. They say, God, we give you thanks because you're God. We give you thanks because you are the Lord Almighty who was and who is. And even if that's where the hymn stopped, that's more than enough to praise God and give him thanks for all of eternity. And so the elders start by saying, we thank you because you're you. We give thanks to you because you are the God who is and you are worthy of all of our praise and adoration. But they also give him thanks because of his power and authority. I love the the phrasing here. They say, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. 
Not that you've worked yourself up, not that you've finally gotten strong enough to take these kingdoms back, but you just decided it was time. And so you picked up and you took your power back and you began to reign. So they said, because of that, we just recognize how awesome and big and powerful you are. And we give you thanks that you are the God who can do anything and everything in your time. They also give him thanks for his victory over the nations, for his victory over his enemies. And again here, they say the nations raged. There's this sense of power and authority and fear that these nations have. They're raging against God and his people, but it says, but your wrath came. And when you did, there was no more raging because no one can stand against you and no one can stand in your presence before you. When you take your power, you bring your victory and nothing can challenge that. They also thank God for his righteous judgment. Says the nations raged, but your wrath came. But also, we thank you that the time for the dead to be judged came. And this is a heavy thing. I've had friends in the past that have either a tattoo or a bumper sticker or something that says, only God can judge me. And yes, that's true. And it's also horrifying. I would much rather be judged by all of you, all of you at the same time, than I would by the God of the universe. Because you know me a little bit but he knows me a lot, a lot better than anyone ever could. God knows me more than I know myself. Hebrews says that the word of God cuts us down and lays us open and puts all of our junk on display, that he knows who we are, who we will be in a more intimate way than we could ever imagine. And so the idea of God judging me is overwhelming and horrifying. But the elders, they thank him for the time for the dead to be judged. Because while that is overwhelming and scary, there is no better place in which to rest if you are a follower of Christ than in the hands of a God who is a righteous judge, but also a God who is rich in mercy, a God who loves us with a steadfast love, a God who, when he looks at us, even though we are covered in sin and brokenness, what he sees is not our sinfulness, but he sees the grace and mercy of his son, Jesus Christ, who stands before him and pleads his own blood on our behalf saying, no, no, this one belongs to me. And God is both a righteous judge, but a merciful savior judges according to his grace and mercy and not our weakness and brokenness. And so these elders that represent the people of God saying, thank you that you're a God in which we can place our hopes and our fears and we can put ourselves in the hands of your judgment. They also thank him for rewarding those who love him. Say the time has come. We give you thanks for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. I love that so much that they're thanking God, not just because he fights on behalf of those who stand boldly and loudly, not just the prophets, but all of the saints, that he is a God who loves his people and those who hold fast to his name. And they say both small and great. The ones who stand and their voices echo from generation to generation, like the apostle John or the apostle Paul, but also every man, woman, boy, and girl who's ever put their faith in Christ Jesus and held fast. And even if we feel like our ripple is very small, and that our lives come and go and almost no one notices, but we live faithfully for Christ. The reward is the same from small to great because it's based on the work that Christ has done for us, in us, and through us. And then they also thank him for bringing justice because he's a merciful God, but he is also a just God. 
And they say, thank you for destroying the destroyers of the earth. They say the, the powers of hell and sin and brokenness have been unleashed in your creation and it's trying to pull your good creation apart, but you've decided that this is the moment when that lasts no longer. And God brings an equal judgment to those who would destroy his good creation. So they saw the kingdom revealed in its fullness and they couldn't help but give thanks. I think a lot of times we talk about the kingdom of God in church as we should. And we use that phrase, we even use it to reference ourselves that we belong to the kingdom of God. But too often we look at that as a concept or a community, but rarely as something that moves us to worship. I wonder how often we've just thought about being members of the kingdom of God and thought, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve this victory. I don't deserve this kind of a relationship with God, but that's who my God is. He is victorious and mighty, and he shares that victory with me. And now I have this hope for this perfect kingdom that I'll get to live in with him for all of eternity. That's something that should move our hearts to be thankful to God and to worship him. Jesus is our king of kings and the victor over the nations. And he's revealing in this promise of his fully realized kingdom, the hope that we have in him. And it should move our hearts to worship and our minds to awe and wonder. We need to join those elders in worship. And when we think about the kingdom of God, when we think about what Christ has done to give us that hope of all of eternity, it should move us to our faces as we cry out, thank you, God, for who you are, but also thank you that you use that power and that authority for me to save me, to love me, to redeem me, and to bring me into your kingdom. Because it's a victorious kingdom. But because he shares it with us, it's a kingdom that should inspire awe each and every day. And then finally, we see that God's kingdom is an intimate kingdom. It's intimate. The temple has always had, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, an incredibly important part in prophecy. And here in verse 19, John focuses attention on God's temple in heaven. Now in the Old Testament, once the temple was built, it was a very unique place because God wanted the temple to in existence because his people had settled down in this promised land now. They had built homes. They were in a place that felt very permanent. And so he comes to David and he says, I'm going to put a temple here in this place so that my presence can be with my people. And so in the midst of this city, in the midst of this nation that God had built in the Old Testament, right in its heart was a temple where the people of God could go to worship him. But the temple was a little bit of a paradox because even though people had equal access to come to the temple, the structure of the temple itself reminded us that something was wrong. There were layers inside the temple. The most outer court was called the court of the Gentiles and anybody was free to go in there. No matter who you were, you could walk in that court, you could hang out, you could spend time inside of the temple. But then the layers started. And there was the court of women where only Hebrew people were allowed, only Jewish people were allowed to go in there. If you weren't of a Jewish background or following God in that way, then you had to stay in the outer court. And then there was another court, the court of men. And in this place, only Jewish men were able to come in to this next layer of the temple. 
And then there was the court of priests where you guessed it, only priests now were allowed to come in. And then beyond that was the most holy place where no one was allowed to go except for one man, the high priest, one time a year. And he better make sure that he was ready before he did. And so even though the temple was there and it was accessible, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the representation of the presence of God was completely walled off from basically every single person that existed on the world except one person one time a year and then he had to go. And so it was a reminder of this paradox that yes, God is with his people, but because of their sin and because of their brokenness, they didn't have full access to his presence. Now, on the other side of Christ, we've been given deeper access to him. Jesus came and met with us in the most intimate way that God could as Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God wrapped up in human form and he walked on our dirt and he touched our people and he spoke to our people in a way that they could see and understand and he brought salvation into the world through his death and resurrection and he left us with a helper. The Bible tells us that when we trust in Christ that we receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God working in and through us, living inside of us, that we become the temple of God. And we have this ability to come boldly before the throne of grace, to with confidence draw near to God. And so we have unprecedented access to God, and yet we still aren't perfect. We still sin. We still fall short. We are still in this conflict, as Paul says, between flesh and spirit. And so even though we have this unique access to God through Jesus Christ, we still have times when we feel very distant. We still have times when we feel like we don't belong. We still have times when we feel like God is beyond our reach. But in verse 19, in this picture of the fullness of God's kingdom, he says, then the temple, God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Again, the temple in the Old Testament had layers and layers, walls and borders and boundaries and barriers, keeping us from getting into the most holy place. And even inside of the most holy place, the space in which the Ark of the Covenant was held was veiled with a cloth from top to bottom as a constant reminder that we don't belong there in the presence of God. And yet now, because of the work of Jesus and because of God bringing his kingdom to earth, he takes his whole temple and opens it up and puts on display the Ark of the Covenant puts his own presence on display for his people. And I love the language that follows there because here's one of those parallels with the seven seals. It says there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. All of this language is what John uses to describe the scene around the throne of God. He says this Ark of the Covenant is revealed and it is in the midst of the presence of God in his fullness. And so to those who remain, after God has put his judgment into place and destroyed the destroyers of the earth, to those who remain who are sealed by the King of heaven, who were saved by the grace and mercy of God, he opens up his temple so that we can fully come into his presence. And we have this beautiful picture here that when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, we get to experience God 
in his fullness. That we get to come boldly and intimately into the presence of God for all eternity. And there is no boundary or barrier, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, or otherwise that could keep us out of his glory. So many times we talk about this, this reward. John says that there's a reward for the servants, the prophets, and the saints, these people who fear his name, both small and great. And that reward is beautiful. We have this promise, Peter says, of an inheritance that God has prepared for us for Christ, that Christ is sharing with us even though we don't deserve it. And it's something beyond we could ever imagine or understand. But a lot of times we think about that reward as simply victory over our enemies or cosmic paradise, cosmic reward. But the reality is the most important thing that we receive from God is himself. That we get complete and eternal intimacy with him. And I think it's important to ask ourselves the question when we think about our hope in Christ, when we think about our eternity with him, are we just looking to escape hell and enjoy a little bit of paradise? Are we just looking to have this heavenly existence for all of eternity and that God is some sort of byproduct to it who happens to be there while we're there also? Or do we really recognize our ultimate reward as being followers of Christ that we get to have a direct intimacy with the God who hung the stars in the sky? The God who is unimaginably powerful and loving and gracious and kind. This relationship that is promised us is one that we have not been able to have throughout the course of human history because of our sin and our brokenness. But as we're going to read in our confession of faith in a moment, one day God is not only going to wipe away our tears and our pain from this world, but also he's going to take our sin and wipe it away once and for all. And we are going to be made holy as he is holy so that we can have total access to the God of the universe that is what should get our hearts excited about eternity. That's what should move our hearts to praise and worship as we think, I don't deserve this relationship with God. I couldn't earn this relationship with God. And yet he loved me so much and desired me so much that he gave everything so that he could spend eternity with me with no barriers or boundaries in between. We need to see the intimacy of this future hope of our kingdom and long for it and be desperate for it. And so we have this kingdom that's promised to us that's victorious, awe-inspiring, and intimate. But also not yet. It's also still a vision of something to come. And yes, we get to enjoy the first fruits of that. We get to enjoy the beginning stages of God's kingdom, and we get to participate in that and live that kingdom out. But also... We still live in a time when the kingdoms of the world are raging against one another. We live in a time of great violence and turmoil and political strife and difficulty. We live in a time where there is conflict and strife going on inside of each and every one of us as we wrestle with this new life that we've been given in Christ, but also the old one that tries to pull us back in and constantly lead us in a direction that falls away from Christ and his goodness. And we're constantly battling back and forth between sin and sanctification, between flesh and between spirit. We live in a world where people are still oppressed and hurt and broken, a world where injustice still reigns supreme. We live in a world where all over the world today, even followers of Christ are being hurt and imprisoned and broken and even killed for their faith in Jesus. And so we live in this in-between. 
We live in this tension between Christ bringing the kingdom to earth and his life, death, and resurrection and the time when Jesus will come again to make everything right and everything new and we'll see that kingdom in its fullness. So how do we live in the in-between? I think the easiest way to summarize that is we reflect and model the kingdom that we believe is coming. We need to be people that live in victory. And one of the things that I love, I teach my elementary schoolers at the Christian Learning Center. Every week we go through the fruit of the Spirit. And there is something triumphant about each and every part of the fruit of the Spirit. We get to be people of love in a world of hate in hearts that are once filled with hate and sometimes still are. That still sneaks in there. And yet we have this promise that if we're in Christ, that love has conquered our sin and that love has conquered our hate and brokenness. And we can put that love into place to conquer the hatred and the violence in this world. We can have joy that conquers sorrow. Even when we're hurting and even when we're broken, nothing can take that ultimate joy away because we know that Christ has won the victory and is bringing it to us. We can have peace that surpasses all understanding. We can have all of this incredible faithfulness that allows us to continue on in our faith, even though things may be hard and things may be difficult. We can be kind in a world that treats each other so poorly. We can be good when temptation and evil is constantly trying to pull us astray. We can have self-control when everything inside of us wants to move towards self-indulgence and use our lives to follow after God. We can live each and every day in complete and total victory and put on display to the world around us that Christ has already conquered my sin. He's already conquered my death even before I taste it. And one day I'm going to be with him forever. And so nothing that comes in this world can steal that away. But we also need to live in awe. It's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to stop paying attention. It's so easy to think about God as someone off in the distance, working and in around us sometimes, doing some miraculous things every now and then. But in reality, he is constantly with us, working in us, through us, and for us. And if we would just take the blinders off, if we would just start looking to see what God is doing around us at all times, I promise you we would find reasons to be in awe and wonder every single moment of every single day. And so we need to be blown away by our God. We need to be overwhelmed by the goodness of what he's already done for us, the goodness of what he's going to do for us, but also just the knowledge of who he is. And people should catch that glow off of us everywhere that we go, that we are just constantly, overwhelmingly moved by our God. But also, we should pursue intimacy with God. We talk a lot about the religious things that we do. We talk a lot about the relational things that we do with God. But I know, at least for me, a true pursuit of intimacy is often very few and far between. Because it's easy to go to church and check a box. It's easy to sit down and read scripture and feel like we've gotten to know God a little bit or maybe pray some prayers and go through our list of the things that we need God to do and maybe throw in some thank yous here and there. But our relationship so often is very cordial with God. But that's not the relationship we're called to have. Jesus says we've been given a spirit of adoption so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. And when you cry out, Abba, Father, when you've been adopted into a family, you don't treat them like distant relatives, but you run and we dive into the arms of our Father God and we love him and we know him and we celebrate him. And so we should be pursuing intimacy with God each and every day because Jesus opened that door. 
Jesus tore that veil from top to bottom so that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. That we can, with confidence, draw near to God. We have a promise in scripture that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And there's no limit of how that will go. The closer we draw near to God, the closer he'll draw near to us. And so it should be our desire that when God whispers in the wind, that it just moves our heart to worship because we are so in tune with his heart and his voice. That's the kind of people we're called to be that model this kingdom to come during the time that we have here and now, living in victory and in awe and pursuing intimacy with God each and every moment of each and every day. And so let's just pray that that would be true for us and pray that God would bring his kingdom in its fullness soon. Father God, we thank you for who you are. And God, we confess the times that we live in defeat and apathy and in great distance from you when we don't have to. God, we thank you that you have made it possible for us to pass those outer courts, to pass through the curtain and directly into your presence. But God, our sin, our brokenness, our circumstances, and the difficulty in the life in which we live sometimes just pulls us out and causes us to forget. So God, I pray that you bind this vision of this kingdom that that you're bringing in its fullness, that you would put it on our hearts and on our minds and that you would seal it up for us and make it the hope and the driving force of all that we do. And that we would put that kingdom on display each and every day of our lives by being a people who live in victory, people who are in awe of all that you do and a people that are so incredibly close to the God who gave everything so that we could be. So we put this in your hands. We ask that you help us to be this kind of person, both individually and as a church. God, we ask that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, the Messiah. God, we ask that even so, Christ would come quickly. We ask all these things in his precious name.